Hi, you're listening to Tales from the Jungle, Living with Addiction. This is a podcast written and produced by a mom of an addict, specifically for other families who live with and or interact with an addicted family member. This is part two of a two-part series. If you didn't listen to part one already, please go back and listen to that episode first. It will help put this episode into perspective. And so I'm going to continue to discuss my take on Chris Hayes' podcast entitled, Why Is This Happening? And it's his interview from February 4th, 2020 with Beth Macy entitled, The Frontlines of Addiction. His interview podcast is a sociological view of the opioid crisis, and Beth Macy has some interesting statistics that she discovered while writing her book, Dope Sick. And this is one of the most intelligent interviews that matches in every way our family's experience with addiction and heroin. Welcome back to Tales from the Jungle. I want to continue talking about the correlation between the interview Chris Hayes did with Beth Macy and how she's the first I've heard to put the face of reality behind our family's experiences and quantify them in a scientific way. In episode one, we talked about MAT, which stands for Medication Assisted Treatment, and Beth Macy describes it as the best treatment available that actually works. She specifically cites Suboxone, which the clinical term is buprenorphine. And in part one, I talked about the astounding statistics that she cites regarding the efficacy of using Suboxone versus attempting to get and stay sober without any medication assistance, especially Suboxone. I'm an avid researcher, and she's the first I've heard to reveal these statistics. So I did a little research on my own, and according to CDC's National Center for Health Statistics, I found that from 2017 to 2018, there were significant changes to opioid-involved death rates, and um, the opioid-involved death rates decreased by 2%, prescription opioid-involved death rates decreased by 13.5%, heroin-involved death rates decreased by 4%, and synthetic opioid-involved death rates, excluding methadone, increased by 10%. So this sounded like somewhat good news. However, the CDC's records also show that in the United States, 67,787 people died from drug overdoses just in June of 2019. And this is only the United States, and it's all overdoses. They didn't limit it to opioids. The 67,000 number is people who died from all, all kinds of overdoses. It's not just opioids. But that was June of 2019, just for the one month. Then in June of 2020, to uh, offset that, there were 81,797 deaths from overdoses. And that's a 17% increase in one year. And and again, we're just talking about a one-month time frame, but I wanted to give apples to apples and say June of 2019 compared to June 2020. And it's a significant increase. This is an epidemic 
that is not like COVID. It can't be cured with one or two vaccinations. And obviously, COVID is making things much worse. Um, Beth Macy says overdose deaths won't plateau until 2025. And with the onset of COVID, I'm hearing about more and more people trapped in addiction and overdosing. Um, there's, it's more difficult because there, some of the community support is gone. You can't get the face-to-face -face treatment. You can't go connect with others. All of that, which is very important to helping an addict stay sober with sober um, other with other people who are also sober. Um, unfortunately, the dealers are still finding ways to get to the addicts. There's all kinds of ingenious ways. And one of the newest things that I've heard about is on Snapchat, where particularly to the young kids, they throw out a menu on Snapchat saying, oh, here's Percocet, here's these different drugs. The kids will go out and they'll buy, they'll go on Snapchat, say, okay, yeah, I want to buy this, and they'll Venmo the money, whatever they do to get the money to the dealer. And then the dealer will actually cut that Percocet with fentanyl. And fentanyl has become crazy addictive. It's so destructive, and it's, uh, and it's causing these kids to die with just the first dose because they don't know what they're doing. They don't even know that there's fentanyl in the drug, and it's becoming so dangerous. Um, but the dealers look at it that they want to get these kids hooked, and the easiest way to do that is to slip them something without them knowing. So it's so difficult. Heroin's now being cut, cut with fentanyl when people don't know it either. And so fentanyl is by far the worst thing that we've seen so far as far as causing deaths and so on. One of the things that happens is that the person taking whatever it is laced with fentanyl causes them to keel over um, in a drug haze and then they vomit. And, and if they're not in the right position, if they're not falling forward, they will choke on their own vomit and, and die. And they, there's something called turtling where they take a backpack and people who know what they're doing, the kids who are already addicted and want this kind of high will put a backpack on the front of them so that when they pass out from the, the fentanyl, they'll fall forward. And so they won't choke on the vomit because they're expecting it. They know that's what's going to happen. It's a crazy idea and just... As things get more and more dangerous, kids are getting more and more experimental. Um, society has played catch-up for a long time because in the beginning, everyone thought, oh, heroin is just for the poor in the, in the poor black neighborhoods, and it's all the drug dealers and all the criminals and, and people who we don't need to worry about, supposedly. I mean, we is everyone, and everyone needs to worry about it. But pretty soon, all of, people started realizing, oh, no, it's in the wealthy communities. The kids are doing it for recreation, and it's everywhere. It's not just um, in the poor society. Um, and 
it, there's still such a stigma attached to it that parents don't want to even talk about it um, out in the open because they must have done something wrong. Um, Beth Macy also talks about kids with ADD who she believes part of the correlation is that they got used to taking pills and because of that, then they were able to trade out their pills for harder drug drugs like Oxycontin, which first came in pill form. Um, and then it gets too expensive, of course, and so then they have to switch out to heroin. But I also think there's something else going on there with a correlation between ADD and ADHD. I don't know that any studies have been done, but my experience has been since Casey also has ADHD, that they are ADHD and ADD kids generally tend to be thrill seekers and doing drugs and um, all of this is beyond the bounds of society. So there's the thrill of actually doing it as well as the thrill of breaking rules and, and that kind of thing. And I think that makes them also more at risk to be addicts, not realizing the consequences. I mean, their brains don't fully develop until they're 25. So they can't see beyond around the corner. They can't see the consequences of their actions. So they're in the moment thinking, this sounds like fun. It sounds like something that I haven't done before. I want to try it. What, how bad can it be? Not understanding how bad it really can be. Getting back to statistics, it's found that people who have addiction that run in their families can get addicted to Oxycontin in as few as five days. And heroin's the same way. Um, users and dealers are many times the same people because once kids get addicted, the price keeps going up and up as their habit requires more and more. They switch from Oxycontin to heroin because it's cheaper. Then they need more and more of it. And pretty soon, in order to support their habit, they've only got a few options. And one of those is dealing drugs. And so they're not really necessarily these evil mafia people out there selling the drugs. I mean, some of them may be, but some of them are still our kids who become the dealers as well. The costs of the urgent care for the uh, for kids who are addicted, emergency rooms, hospital bills, all of that is astronomical. It's costing all of society a tremendous amount. They go to the emergency room, they get treated for their overdoses, they get treated for abscesses, they get treated for all kinds of things that are related to the addiction. And they don't have a job. They can't afford to pay it. So it just becomes a bill on the record. But society still has to support the hospitals. The, someone needs to pay those bills, and it becomes all of us. Um, I'm not saying that that's the only thing that we need to look at, because obviously we want our kids to do better. But that's something that all of society should care about. The question becomes, what do we do about this? How do we start getting people better and even people who are poor, how do we get them better? And one of the things Beth Macy talks about is providing medication assistant treatment in jails and prison instead of just punishing them. The court systems are starting to understand that this is not necessarily a criminal problem in the sense that these kids want to go out and, and, 
wreak havoc on society and, and have crimes and so on. They're just trying to get by from day to day. And there are diversion programs now, different things like that, where uh, courts will send kids who are first-time criminals, uh, second-time criminals, to rehab to get their life together. But without the medication-assisted treatment, that is not going to help them as much as it needs to. And Beth Macy really advocates putting medication-assisted treatment in jails and prison. So if they got that in jails and prison, then give them a huge head start to getting clean and sober before they get out. How much of a benefit would that be to society in order to have kids well on their way and then give them resources, places that they can go to continue to work the program, to connect with other sober individuals? I think they do some of that, but the resources are stretched so thin that I don't think there's nearly enough of that going on. As I mentioned last time, Beth Macy cited statistics showing that six, there's a 60% success rate with Suboxone versus an 8% success rate with abstinence alone. That That's huge. I mean, 92% relapsing because they can't get sober from just abstinence. It it's the numbers are there and it's showing us that we need to do something more and we need to do something different. And it's one thing to talk about society's statistics, but each percentage point represents a real family with real life or death issues. We're one of those families. And in my darkest times there, I had refused to hope anymore. I would keep putting one foot in front of the other, but I had no illusion that there would be any way out Frankly, the reason we went ahead and agreed with on Suboxone and this method of trying to get clean and sober for Casey was that I didn't see any other way. We had tried over and over and over with always the same results and always a relapse. And we had never seen anything different because it was just the same thing over and over again. Her mind gets locked in this this cycle of thinking about drugs and not being able to break that. And you need something outside of yourself to be able to help you. Um, it's not a magic pill. Suboxone is not a magic pill. The hard work still has to be done by the addicts and by the family members. And everyone, the addicts and the family, needs to analyze their own behavior and have the desire to change. And part of that desire is education, learning what it is that that enabling looks like. What are the signs of relapse? What are the things that you do on your own to contribute to the bad behavior? Um, an addict has reasons that they started being an addict and it starts for one reason, continues for another, but then if they have a desire to get clean and sober, if they go back into the same environment that they started with, they're going to relapse. And so the whole family needs to figure out what they need, get the support you need, and frankly, make a plan and stick with it. If you have to write that plan down, write it down. But something has to change. You can't keep doing the same thing that your whole family has done over and over again and expect change to happen. 
medical professionals don't know enough or aren't are more interested in financial gain. So it's really up to the family to figure out what they need to do and advocate for their best interests. The statistics look bleak, especially with COVID, but I'm so glad someone is finally talking about a realistic way for addicts to get clean. Now let's try and work on removing the stigma of being able to use the medication-assisted treatment. Let's talk about the realities of the havoc that drug abuse causes. And we need to figure out how people can get clean, whatever it takes. And it'll be a benefit to society all the way around. All the new productive members of society it will create. All the the criminals that it will keep from creating. Okay, okay, I'll get off my soapbox, but I'm just so passionate about this. I just really believe that it can make such a difference for so many families. So I hope you found this two-part series helpful. It was so profound for me because I kept screaming at the TV every time I saw reports that got it wrong. So I hope that this has helped you and helped your family. And I'll talk to you in two weeks. And if you did find it helpful, please leave a review to help others find it. You can find me on Twitter, and I'm located at Chelsea's Jungle if you want to leave comments or questions. Thanks, and I'll talk to you soon. Music is Riding the Dragon by Movie Theater. Thank you.